At midnight Saturday local time, a humanitarian ceasefire was supposed to come into effect between the warring sides in Nagorno-Karabakh, the largely Armenian-populated mountainous region which has been in dispute for decades. How confident are you, Professor Bajalan, that this ceasefire will hold? Or are we set, do you think, to see another protracted war similar in scale to the conflict of the early 1990s? I think at present, uh, we are probably going to see, at least in the short term, a slowdown in the violence. And that's largely because of the weather in the region. You know, it's a mountainous region. Uh, and obviously winter in the Caucasus can be quite hard. So major offensives will be very difficult in the coming months. So in the short term, hopefully this ceasefire will hold. However, in the longer term, once the thaw comes in spring, uh, that leaves over a lot of questions about what's going to happen in the future. And what happens in the spring is going to be largely determined by the negotiations that take place. So there is a danger that this war could spiral out of control still, but you know, hopefully the weather has put uh, you know put a stop to some of the immediate violence. But you know, the danger still remains. You don't know what could happen in such a volatile situation, and the uh, border region, Nakhon-Karabakh, has been prone to flaring up in violence. Uh, periodically um, since the ceasefire in 1994. So it's very hard to tell at the moment, but hopefully we'll see you know, a, a downtick in the violence. There's been a lot of commentary and analysis about the uh, foreign uh, element of this conflict. It's, for instance, been reported that Turkey's sales of arms to Azerbaijan increased sixfold in the first nine months of this year. There are also joint exercises between Turkish and Azeri armed forces in the weeks leading up to the commencement of hostilities. How much credence do you give to the idea this war has been launched by Azerbaijan with Turkey's blessing as part of a wider strategy by Ankara to extend its power throughout the region? I think there is a lot of evidence to show that Turkey provided critical support to Azerbaijan to launch this offensive. It seems the evidence indicates that Azerbaijan was the one that uh, began this offensive and one of the reasons being able to be, uh, launch uh, such an effective offensive has been the support it's received from Ankara. So it does very much look like the two sides are very close in their relationship. And, you know, Ankara has, as you noted, been trying to expand its uh, influence across the region. And there are a number of reasons for this. Turkey is a growing power, and President uh, Erdogan of Turkey wants to be taken more seriously on the international stage. So we're seeing Turkey, uh, you know, increasingly intervene in places, including we've seen in Syria, we've seen in um, uh, Libya, and we've also seen in the Eastern Mediterranean. And now we're seeing uh, in Azerbaijan, and it's important to note that there are important cultural and historical links between the Azeri Turkish population and the Turkish population uh, in Turkey. There's a lot of sympathy. So there's a kind of great power politics taking place there. But there's also a domestic agenda which, uh, funct- which functions for both Turkey and Azerbaijan. You know, Turkey is having a lot of economic problems at the moment. And, you know, these foreign adventures whip up nationalism in the country, which helps consolidate Erdogan's nationalist base and also helps split the opposition because the opposition in Turkey, the opposition to Erdogan, is split between 
uh, anti-Erdogan nationalists, sort of secular nationalists, uh, who tend to be pro-war and left-wing and pro-Kurdish elements who tend to be anti-war. So it's hard for those opposition groups to consolidate uh, uh, while Erdogan is engaging in foreign adventures because, you know, it whips up that nationalism. And there's a simple, similar fa- uh, sort of similar dynamic taking place in Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan is a country that has been under the control of one family uh, almost entirely since its independence. And that regime, the regime of Ilhan Aliyev and his uh, father, um, Haider Aliyev, you know, lacks democratic legitimacy. Therefore, sort of to replace the democratic legitimacy uh, it lacks, it uses nationalism and the Armenian threat as a, as a key sort of ideological tool to consolidate support around the regime and to distract again from domestic concerns. We saw last year, you know, uh, protests against uh, the regime in Baku. People are angry about sort of the way that the oil wealth in the country is being used, the corruption that takes place in in the country, the growing environmental problems, the growing uh, inequality between rich and poor, and the lack, general lack of freedom in, in, in the country. So, you know, this nationalist uh, fervor created by the war is a distraction from some of those internal problems, but it's also a distract, uh, it's also an attempt, again, to consolidate that nationalist base in Azerbaijan. The regime of Ilhan Aliyev has been criticized by nationalist Azeris uh, for, you know, not being able to uh, be successful in Nagorno-Karabakh. You know, the war ended in uh, 1994, and it ended on very unfavorable uh, terms for Azerbaijan. So many nationalists have criticized the Azeri regime for its failure to win back the territory they'd lost. So, you know, recently, uh, you know, this summer, nationalists stormed the Azeri parliament, you know, demanding war with Armenia because they're angry that the government is not taking action to liberate what they see as their territories. Russia is also, of course, a major player in the region. It's viewed as a patron and protector of Armenia, yet it's also provided weapons to Azerbaijan. Where do you think uh, Moscow's interests lie in this conflict? Well, Moscow is the former colonial power in both these countries, and the conflict between uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan is actually a good tool of leverage for uh, Moscow to maintain its influence in both countries. I mean, and particularly in Armenia, which is the weaker of the two powers. Armenia does not have the oil wealth that Azerbaijan has, and its population is much smaller. It's about 3 million compared to about 10 million in Azerbaijan. Uh, So Russia has played this balancing act uh, between the two sides and has used, you know, weapon sales as leverage, you know, often selling weapons cheaper to the Armenians, but still also selling weaponry to the uh, Azerbaijani government as well. And for a long time, you know, both Armenia and Azerbaijan had similar type of uh, political elites in their country. Uh, Both countries were dominated by sort of uh, Soviet-era apparatchiks. But in Armenia, what we saw in... 
2018 was a revolution against the ruling elite and a kind of uh, a, a democratic movement to reform the country. So I think Moscow has been very wary that a more democratic Armenia might seek to uh, extricate itself from under Russian influence. Uh, and, you know, Russia are very sensitive about, Russia is very sensitive about um, its influence in the Caucasus when Georgia attempted to move more closely closer to the west uh, that provoked a war with russia that went in uh, and and uh, invaded georgia so russia is keen to maintain its leverage over both countries and i think the sort of ongoing frozen nature of the conflict allows Russia to sort of play both sides against each other and maintain its influence. It's tempting, I'm sure, for those listening today to try to identify, as it were, a bad guy and a good guy in this conflict. A cursory examination of the last war, however, reveals there were atrocities on both sides. In the Kajali massacre of February 1992, for instance, dozens, perhaps hundreds of Azeri civilians were massacred. In April of that year, as many as 100 Armenian civilians were slaughtered. Is this a case of a pox on both their houses, of the crime of so-called ethnic cleansing being committed on both sides? I think certainly there's a lot of blame to go around on both sides regarding the humanitarian abuses that take place. You know, in this latest round of conflict, we've seen, you know, uh, attacks on civilian areas by both sides. And of course, as you noted, you know, from the original conflict that dates back to the late Soviet period and the the, the, the immediate post-Soviet era, um, we saw massacres on both sides, very brutal massacres, very bloody massacres, sometimes committed by civilians upon other civilians and sometimes committed by military forces on other uh, on civilians. And at the same time, we've seen a lot of ethnic cleansing. Um, you know, the Armenians were at the, uh, during the war were able to seize control of a land bridge that connects Armenia proper to the Nakorno-Karabakh region. And that region that they occupied was a predominantly Muslim uh, region. And, you know, upwards of 600,000 Azeri uh, Muslims were forced out of their homes and live as refugees to this day. And, of course, you know, within Azerbaijan, there was also ethnic cleansing of Armenians. So, uh, in a general sense, there's a lot of blame to go around in terms of, you know, the, the violence that takes place between both sides. But, you know, in this latest round of conflict, it seems that the Azeris have sort of gone on the offensive. And, you know, more generally, it's very, you know, it's a, it's a tough question, the fate of Nagorno-Karabakh, because for the Azeris, the region it was part was you know awarded to Azerbaijan by the Soviet Union. Uh, it was an autonomous region within Azerbaijan, but the people in the Karabakh were predominantly Armenian and wanted to be part of Armenia. So, uh, from the Azeri perspective, they've lost you know uh, large amounts of territory, and they feel aggrieved by that. And for the Armenians, there's a feeling that. Um, you know, these people are predominantly Armenian and they should have the right to exercise, uh, you know, national self-determination and be part of Armenia if they want to be part of Armenia. So, you know, there were strong arguments on both sides about the righteousness of their causes. But, you know, if we look at this latest round of violence, it seems to have been initiated by the Azeris.
who are unhappy with the status quo. Finally, Professor Bajalan, and you've touched on this already, but how might this conflict be resolved if indeed resolution is even a realistic possibility at the present juncture? You've mentioned the centrality of what ought to be the centrality of the question of the right of self-determination of Nagorno-Karabakh, or Atsak, as it is known to the local Armenian population. So I imagine that really should be central to any negotiations to any future settlement of the conflict is that right of self-determination. And connected with that right of self-determination, I would have thought uh, rejecting foreign manipulation and interference of, of all kinds. Well, I think for a peace to be achieved, I think it, it, it's very difficult because, you know, both sides have these maximalist demands. Uh, and I think, yes, on one hand, we have to, you know, the some kind of solution is going to have to take into account the feelings and opinions of the people who live in the corner Karabakh who overwhelmingly want to be part of Armenia. But at the same time, Armenia has to be willing to give up those territories it occupied uh, surrounding the corner Karabakh, those formerly Muslim majority regions from which people were ethnically cleansed. So, you know, the solution that's probably going to be most realistic is one where, you know, both sides have to give a little and both sides can walk away with something. And for Armenia, uh, that's going to be the self-determination of the Karabakh. And for Azerbaijan, that's going to be the return of those territories occupied by Armenia around the Karabakh. And perhaps more generally, an opening up of the relations between the the two people. What makes you know the situation even more tense is that there is little contact between Armenians and Azeris. There isn't much flow across the border. Once the borders open up, if the borders could open up, that'll allow communities to move back and forth with a lot more ease and sort of reduce some of the sort of polarization and hatred between the two sides as they get to know each other.